The Ability Co-op is one of the largest student activism groups in the country, promoting awareness and advocating for policy changes to make Trinity Campus an inclusive environment for students with disabilities. Despite only being established in the summer of 2020, we've already secured thousands in funding to support our projects, which include a short film we're producing, this very podcast you're listening to, a training programme we'll be introducing across the country and potentially internationally, and so much more. We're always looking for people to help out wherever they can, whether it be graphic design, social media management, videography, writing, and so much more. So if you're interested in getting involved, reach out to us. You'll find links to all our socials in the show notes below, or you can find us by simply searching for the Ability Co-op. Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of the Trinity Ability Co-op podcast. I'm your host, Harry O'Brien. In this episode, I'll be sitting down with the two candidates for education officer. Bev Ganaki is a third-year biomed student specialising in zoology. She's deputy STEM faculty convener and chairperson of the Diversity in STEM committee. She's also been class rep twice. Dan O'Reilly is a fifth-year mechanical engineering student. And he has held and established too many roles for me to mention, but he's done a lot since he first got involved with the student union in his second year. I asked them all about why they're running, questioned their manifestos, and asked them why they're best suited to become education officer. So sit back and enjoy. Bev, you're studying zoology. Why did you pick zoology? Uh, yeah, that's a super interesting question. So I actually didn't know that I wanted to do zoology when I started. I did uh, biological and biomedical sciences where you do general biology for two years and then you specialize. But when we were in first year, we had a module which kind of covered the basis of the natural science. So from then on, I knew it was definitely either zoology or botany that I would want to do. Okay, and why zoology then? Uh, if I'm honest, the decision really came down to the wire, like it was August and I still hadn't decided between the two of them. And I think zoology, I have more specific interests in that area, but I knew that it didn't really matter at this point, because if I want to do research in the natural sciences, then, um, either zoology or botany would, would have suited. Cool. Cool. Um, you're running for education officer. What, what made you want to go for the position? Yeah, um, so I didn't get involved in the SU until I was in second year and I was a class rep. And then at the end of second year, I was elected as the biology courses convener, which is basically the representative on on school meetings. And I think through that experience of representing a large cohort of students with there's like 250 odd in the biology course and then been the representative for 500 people on you know issues pertaining to their academic life I thought yeah I could definitely do this for everyone you know and I I think that I have the ideas that you know aren't just specific to biology students that that could benefit everyone yeah I think you do as well I've seen your manifesto we'll get on that in a minute first I'd like to talk about your Laidlaw project because I had I briefly skimmed through it and it talks about like urban plants in Dublin how they like help the ecosystem you're gonna have to explain it to me yeah absolutely i'm delighted you asked so basically what i did was i wanted to survey abundant plant species in dublin so that's like the most common plant species um and whether or not they were useful for these things called nature-based solutions and nature-based solutions are essentially um ways that we mitigate both climate and social problems together so a good example of that would be um the green wall 
at the Trinity Business School. And, and that's where my idea kind of was birthed. So I seen the green wall and I went, that's really cool. You know, green walls are so important. They reduce um, temperatures. They're, they're like sinks for, for water and, and, and carbon and things like that. But um, what I wanted to, my question was, you know, there's a bunch of plants in that green wall and does anybody know why we chose the ones that we chose? And um, I wanted to see if we could use the plants that were already really common in Dublin and um, whether they could be useful. And so essentially what I did was I went out on the side of the road and I started looking at weeds and then you classify them into ecosystem services. And ecosystem services are kind of the, the, the human benefits that we get from plants. So some of them can be eaten, some of them are pollinators, some of them just provide like cultural ecosystem services, which are like, I suppose, social value. Like if you see nice plants, it's gonna like make you feel better, that type of thing, like, you know, greens, open green spaces. Yeah. Um, and so I then categorized them. And then I, I said, well, what type of nature-based solutions can we get on different levels? from the services that these plants provide. So there are certain plants that you could use in the green wall that would like basically provide more benefits. Exactly, yeah. And so my question was like, should we be using the ones that we already have at our disposal rather than you know getting a, a company in to just put a bunch of plants in there and, and nobody knows why they're there, that type of thing, like kind of like harnessing what we have already. And what were the findings from that research? Um, I, I thought they were really interesting. So the majority of the plants um, provided uh, provisioning ecosystem services, which are things like um, food and medicine. So a lot of them could be eaten or were traditionally used as medicine. And so the, the nature-based solutions aren't obvious for those types of things. But I mean, if, if we have a lot of plants that you can eat, then you have community gardens as a potential nature-based solution because you're you're growing your own food and you know there's there's less air miles on on that food but there's also that sense of community um, where you're working with other people to, to grow your own food so there's that but we also seen a lot of like just things that you would call weeds and, and I know that the definition of a weed is, is up for debate but you know things like dandelions and and horseweed and things like that but I think that it's really important that we don't count them out because they definitely have their benefits. So what are the best plants to use in the Trinity business world? I haven't got there yet. That's what I want to do in summer too. Okay, okay, all right. So um, we're awaiting that. In yes. your manifesto, you mentioned lens reports, and that's interesting to me as a student with disability. You say you want to ensure that lens reports are being adhered to and that lectures are being adequately captioned for all students. That's something that I've heard before. How do you plan on going about that, ensuring that lecturers adhere to lens reports? Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, it's obviously I'm a customer. Um, we have accommodations that are like 15 minutes for the hour. And the student was like, I emailed my lecturer and, and he told me, oh, sorry, that doesn't apply to CA. And so then we got in contact with the disability service and, and they told us the opposite. So you have situations where lecturers just say it's college policy and they just expect students to, to go away then, you know, um, and then adhering to the lens reports. And so one way I think that we could tackle 
about it to include a, a lot of class rep training um, because this year, you know, the, the police officers spoke for 15 minutes and we spent 90 minutes talks. I would gladly flip those because I think that the skills that class reps need to deal with those situations where lecturers don't adhere to lens reports are, are, are the type of skills that, that we're responsible for providing them with. Okay, okay. Um, so your plan to ensure that lens reports are adhered to more is more training for class rep students. Absolutely, but it, that wouldn't be the standalone thing. Like I would, I would obviously work closely with the disability service and then um, heads of schools as well to make sure that that information has been disseminated to teaching staff. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're already told about it. They're already told that like they have to adhere to lens reports. Is there, would you just tell them again? No, you can obviously like you could keep telling them and then that they're not going to do it. But if, if we if we kind of go at them from all angles, if if we take an approach of we've said this time and time again, it's still not been done. And then you have class reps who are adequately trained to know how to deal with that situation. Then you're sort of putting the pressure on lecturers a little bit to kind of go, OK, well, the thing that I'm doing is wrong. Um, and so I think that if you have a sort of two pronged approach to that type of thing, then then hopefully we could see change. OK, you mentioned in your manifesto, I have no idea what this is, you're going to explain this to me. You want to consider and talk about, think of um, reintroducing an academic Senate. Can you explain that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the academic Senate would essentially serve um, a place for the education officer and then elected student representatives um, called academic senators if you will to critique um, college policy about education to discuss how it should be implemented and to lobby for changes um, the academic senate existed before it it wasn't a success it became you know what should have been a place to discuss college policy about education became a place to discuss local issues, which, which just meant that it became another faculty assembly. The significance of the academic Senate is, I do think it's a really good idea. You know, that's what, what Senates do. They critique policy and, and legislation at a government level and, and they make changes. I think it's a really good idea. And I also note that in September, no junior freshman to senior, fre senior sophister student will have ever been an academic Senator. And I think it's a really good idea. And I don't think it's past the point of reform. And I would really like to, you know, there's been reviews of the academic Senate, the structures are in place to reintroduce it. So I'd love to ask students, what do they think? And um, is it something that they would like to see? And, and it means then that the education officer better represents students on college committees because they essentially have a soundboard to, to, to dis discuss this policy with. And also then you get a group of students who get to you know, enact meaningful change on the policy that governs their education. And then the education committee, then its workload is, is reduced. And so that then they get to focus on specific campaigns and, and, and providing resources for students in that regard. Um, so I do think it's something worth considering. Okay, so it will be a, a committee of students. Yes, decided not to implement it. And essentially the student representatives would be 
there would be 30 senators and it would be 10 from each faculty. So you would have 10 from arts, 10 from STEM and 10 from health science. And what they would do is they would meet regularly and they would discuss things like the virtual learning environment policy, return of coursework policy, these types of things and say, how could this be changed? And, and sort of like act as a vehicle to inform the education officer when the education officer sits on committees um, to represent students. So I'm not kind of what the class reps already do. Yeah, you could, could definitely say the education officer does, but there's no sort of structured way for the education officer to hear, you know, suggestions from 300 different people. We have the education committee this year, which says that it aims to look at policy in this way, but it also aims to run campaigns and provide resources. And I do think that it's overworked. And I think that there's great benefit to having this, this, this body where students who are interested in policy and interested in, in, in academic affairs specifically can come and they can dissect that type of thing. Okay, okay, cool. Um, you have more promises on your manifesto than any other candidate for education, welfare and president. And I know because I checked them all. And also none of them are outside the realm of possibility. Some people have promises like, oh, we're going to give students money back. And like, that's just not happening. Um, but you do have a lot of, you're giving yourself a lot of work to do next year should you get elected. Do, first of all, where is this motivation going to come from to get all this done? And secondly, how can students hold you to account? That's a really good question. I, I would like to begin by saying there's nothing on my manifesto that, as you said, I don't think could be done. Um, a lot of things are small, you know, a run for something campaign would run for three, four weeks. That's at the start of term. Um, and it's something that I've, I've promised to do. And if I'm elected, it will happen. And then you have other small things like lens reports, which are continuously being worked on. Captioning is a continuous thing, but you also have um, things like the diversity and inclusion document is it's a big task like a lot of things on my manifesto but i don't think that these things would be done alone they would be done in collaboration with i mean the the diversity and inclusion document would be with the welfare officer relevant part-time officers and, and different societies and groups and and that would be something that then the workload is broken down because you're sharing it amongst people and i think the collaboration is a huge part in the success of this role because you know, without doubt, the role of the education officer is the, the most work heavy one. But I think that you really need to rely on um, working alongside other people to, to see real change. And in terms of how people could hold me accountable, I'm proposing a feedback poll in the weekly email, which asks students what do they want to see more or less of and, and whether or not they feel represented. So that's obviously like straight up that's a way that, that people could say well I don't think you're doing this effectively or I think you should stop doing that and focus on this but there's 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 other means there's emails there's office hours there's there's council there's things like that so I do think that you can hold officers accountable um at any point along the way that's really interesting with the poll um if you could only get one thing done on your manifesto what would it be oh that is really interesting. Uh, I, I would say the roadmap, the roadmap for, for return to the classroom. 
I think that's really important. And it's the thing that affects all students. You know, what does a safe and valuable return to the classroom look like? If that was the only thing that I achieved, if students made better informed decisions and they felt confidence in the return to the classroom um, or maybe their journey to returning to the classroom, then I would be content with, with that. Okay, okay. It's interesting. Final question here. Um, there's also, Daniel is also running for the education officer. Um, and he, he's a fine manifesto. What sets you apart from Daniel and makes you the best candidate to represent students as education officer? Yeah, I think that my manifesto covers a broad scope of topic, but it also covers things that I know that affect students. They've affected me and my friends and my classmates. I've spent countless hours speaking to students and I've made feasible promises. And yes, there's lots of them, but I think that shows that I'm committed to ensuring a fair and accessible education for everyone. And I think that that's why I stand out that I, I really do champion students um, and, 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 and the power of students. So I think that that's why I stand out is because I really will put the student front and center. Okay, thanks for sitting down with us today, Beth. No worries, cheers, Harry. Great, Daniel. So your, your manifesto, it's quite systems-orientated. Would that, would that be correct? Yeah, it is, yes. Yeah, and um, I suppose that comes from you being an engineer, does it? Well, it comes from me being an engineer, but it also comes from, you know, I've been involved in the SU since... 2017 like I'm, I'm a fifth year so I got involved in second year so I've I've been addressing the same problems every year for four years and there comes a point where you have to say like okay well if the same problems cropping up every single year clearly there's a systemic reason for the issue and there can be a systemic if there's a systemic problem there can be a systemic solution and I think we're doing a student like I think if a, if any student representative let alone one that we're actually paying is using efficiently by dealing with problems individually that could be fixed systemically I think we're kind of doing students a disservice. Can you specifically mention some examples of problems like systemic problems along with their systemic solutions? Well the the biggest one and the most visible one is the return of coursework and there's one one things I highlight in my uh, manifesto in that like half the uh, uh, not well i won't say half but a good a good chunk of of casework for any student rep is just trying to get lecturers to give feedback on assignments and give feedback on assignments in a timely manner like we've all had assignments that were due in week three and we didn't get a grade back until the end of the entire module but that's happened to everyone that's and that's basically a universal experience in this college but there is a college policy saying that we are entitled to feedback in 20 working days. And there are nice caveats in there for if it's gonna take longer, the, the lecturer just has to notify students that, uh, oh, this is gonna take longer. Here's why, here's when I expect to get it done. Like there are, this isn't a, this isn't a draconian policy. It's, it's quite a nice, like, this is what you should do. If you can't do it, this is what you should do. And yet it still isn't being followed. And you know, the, the what's happening 20, 30 times uh, a semester in every class is some poor class are either not knowing this is a thing because a lot of them don't know this policy or they're having to like individually go to every professor and say, hey, you're in violation of this 
policy, please send us feedback in this amount of time. And just having to keep doing that over and over again. And over my years, I've kind of decided like, well, also I'm an educator, so I kind of know this myself, that uh, giving constructive feedback is just hard. Uh, there's lots of staffing issues in the college. Um, budgets being cut, especially with COVID, there's like no TAs to do any grading. So professors have to take time out of their day to, to grade quite a lot on top of their administrative work, on top of their research work, on top of their just normal teaching work. So it is quite difficult for them to give constructive feedback, you know, lectures are people too. So the systemic problem, the systemic solution I think to this is to work with the college to codify a way for constructive feedback to happen easier. And that's with um, rubrics or something like that. So like I've gotten fantastic rubrics um, from some assignments in the past where, you know, I didn't really get any written feedback, but it was my assignment was broken down into 10, 15 different sections. Like I grade in each section. So then I knew, okay, I was really strong on this bit, but I was really weak on this bit. So then for my next assignment, I knew I am solid on how I did this bit. I need to really work on how I do this. And then my grades went up and I learned and I improved and I got a better education for it. And at the end of the day, that's why we're all here in university is to get a good education. And I think if we tell lecturers, break down every assignment to a minimum number of things, and we just codify that sort of thing. And then the flip side of that is um, make sure that everyone knows that's your right, because that's the other problem with um, like these college policies I mentioned otherwise in my manifesto that there are plenty of, you know, these kind of systemic solutions already exist. And then they're just being, they're being sandbagged by the other problem of students don't know what their rights are because college policy is nigh on incomprehensible. There's the college policy that says that lecturers can't start before 9am and can't finish before 6pm. And you have to have one hour break for lunch in between. That is college policy. That is one line in a 9,000 word document. How are we expecting students or class reps even to know that that's their right when it's basically hidden? So that's another one of my manifesto points is like the SU should do the job of going through this absolutely horrific language that is co college policy and breaking it down into this is the one line that you need to know of these 9,000 words that detail how uh, timetabling information is inputted into CMS, which is the college system for organizing lectures. This is the one line. Co lectures can't start before 9 a.m. They can't finish after 6 p.m. They have to end 10 minutes to the hour. That is your right as a student. If you're not getting it, demand your rights. If you're not getting your right, you ask, go to the SU, the SU will demand your rights. So if we just make people more aware of what their rights actually are, then that is helping every other systemic solution along the way. Because the system is only as good as it's uh, accessed. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and you mentioned the rubric, which like I've done assignments where the rubric doesn't come out until after we've done the exam. And it's quite annoying then because, or like in a case of an assignment, you want to bloody know what they want from the assignment. And you don't know because they don't give the rubric until after. You don't even know what they want. That's pretty interesting. You mentioned about the rubric, having a clear, solid rubric. And um, you have another policy where you want all out-of-pocket expenses incurred by a student uh, required to complete their studies that should be paid for by the college. Can you give examples of how, what this would cover? 
Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to give some fairly STEM-centric examples because that's um, that's my background, obviously. Um, so, in STEM, if you are if, if you study anything in the STEM faculty that isn't like pure maths or computer science, you have to spend four fifty euro in first year for a lab coat. I spent fifty euro in first year on a lab coat because I was an, a naive first year; I didn't know any better, and I use this lab coat a grand total of eight times. That is just, that is just shocking. But, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough, I was privileged enough to be in a financial situation that that didn't impact me uh, as drastically as it does impact others. And we do have, we do have some uh, nice supports in the college, the senior tutor's office does offer financial supports on a case-by-case -case basis. We're going back to the other issue of not everyone knows exists. But, I highlight this in my manifesto more so because, you know, as well as as well as dealing with individual casework and trying to improve the college, the, there is a the larger duty of the SU to kind of lobby for things on a national level. And obviously the big top in uh, higher education at the moment is higher education funding. And the big document in higher education funding is the Castles Report. And the Castles Report talks about the, the student contribution charge, the direct €3,000 that we all pay. And in all, in the in the whole document and uh, in discussions, they talk about higher education funding, higher education, as if the student contribution charge is the only mandatory charge, as if you are a college student and the only money you have to pay as a direct result of you being a college student is a three thousand euro, and that's not true. And that means that in these conversations about higher education funding, a lot of things is slipping through the gaps. Um, so if we if we expand this conversation to be like no the student contribution charge is not covering this and also the student contribution charge isn't meant to cover that because student contribution charge is supposed to cover student services whereas if you're incurring a cost directly to complete your grade that's a cost of the that's a cost of the module running and that should be covered by your tuition fees which should be covered by higher education uh, the higher education grant so this is a this isn't really a failing of the of the college this is a college desperately trying to uh, um desperately trying to offset the the irish government leaving them behind like then we've got health science students that legally can't go on placement until they get their vaccines and then they're uh being forced to pay all this money for them and they we've got uh these i won't say legally i'm, I'm actually not sure i don't want to make that statement um but you know, health and safety wise they can't do that without getting vaccines uh, if you're a STEM student, you can't go into the lab without a lab coat, and you're being forced to pay this fifty euro. Like, where it's it's there's a there's a great word for it. But I can't think of what it is. Where you're just forcing, you're telling people that their college is being paid for, and then you're and then you're saying, oh, accept this, oh, accept that. So there's all these hidden college, hidden fees, and uh, it's really impacting people because you know a lot of, a lot of college students are fairly fairly on the wire at finances. You know, I've I've skipped meals in my five years in college. I'm sure other students have because they've come down to the wire in finances. And these are the sorts of things that make people skip meals. It's because they thought that they budgeted and then a fee that they didn't know was going to come upon them came upon them. And when that's being done by the college, that's horrible. And how do you implement a system to eliminate that? Like you, you say in your manifesto, you've already begun it. Can you explain the solution other than telling the college, hey, do this.
Yeah, as I, as I so my, my manifesto is, you know, the two pages, and then also I've made use of the online by giving some expanded information in hyperlinks. And in, my, in the expanded information, I, I admit that this isn't a problem that's going to be fixed in a year. You know, I can I can start this work. I can, um, I, I can make a little bit of progress. I can maybe cut down one or two of the charges. Like, so uh, when I say I've already started this, so what I've done is I basically use the class reps in STEM to gather as much of this costing for the STEM faculty, because I'm a STEM convener. That's kind of my job at the moment. And one that was identified as, okay, this seems like a fight that we can win for next year's students, because that's, that's all we can really do. When we're having this conversation about, about these costs now, we can't get the money back for this year's students, but we can maybe help next year's students. So what we think myself and the physics convener, Julian Carolyn, we're fairly confident now that we have identified in the School of Physics, they are being forced to pay 40 euro for an online textbook. And this is in, in, in our opinion, this is a very clear violation of uh, college policy. It's a Trinity VLE policy. I can, I can explain ex exactly how it breaks if you want, but the important note is it does break it. And in our in our um, in our emails back and forth with the school, they they use the exact language of the policy, sort of like which is fairly hamstringing them because it's like, oh yeah, no, you're saying you're saying it's not a VLE, and then you're exactly defining a VLE. Um, but now it's like this. So now that we've identified this is a fight to pick. We can pick that fight, and we're we're making good progress, and we're pretty confident that next year's first years will not have to pay this money. So that's like one cohort of students. There's students that take physics modules, which is a fair number. It's a couple hundred students because it's not just students directly in physics. It's also students in engineering. It's also students in maths. It's also students in um, biomed biomedical sciences. Weirdly enough. There's a couple hundred students the next year we are confident this 40 euro will not apply to them and that'll be one incremental change and that's all that any uh, single sabbath can hope for so i can i can kind of hope that i can make these incremental changes maybe i can better advertise the the senior tours bursaries um for other stuff and then also i hope to kind of further the wider conversation in higher education funding and okay when we're talking about when the Castles report, if it ever does, come back from Europe and we're talking about higher education funding models, let's not forget that the 3,000 euro student contribution charge is the only cost being applied to students. Let's not forget that there's all these other costs and they need to be included in the conversation. If you're elected as education officer, you'll take up your role in May. Um, the government uh, has planned to have every adult vaccinated or offered a vaccine by September. And they're, they're on track so far as we speak in the 3rd of March. You have one of your most prominent uh, policies in your manifesto is a make professors walk a module in my shoes campaign, where they take a module online to see what it's like. Such wood will be back to um, in-person teaching um, by September, uh, wouldn't that make your walk a module in my shoes campaign redundant? Well, no, because I, I don't want to be pessimistic, um, but I, I have I have seen plans. I was working on them actually an hour ago before this call, um, working with the education officer, uh, consulting on the college's phase plans for what if the vaccination plan doesn't work out. But it is my own view, and if we look at the Digital Futures paper, which is the controversial paper 
that was reported on in TN and UT before Christmas about like the future of education. Online hybrid learning in some form or another is here to stay no matter what happens because um, there's just too much opportunity. You know, it allows for different kinds of exchanges, allows for remote working, which a lot of staff, like never mind students, a lot of staff want to remote work. Uh, so I've, I've mentioned that I work in the School of Physics. I work for the School of Physics in Trinity Walton Club. My boss moved to Kerry um, because why wouldn't she? Because she can do all of her work online now and she doesn't have to pay Dublin rent and she can raise her kid in a nicer area of the, of the country. So there'll be a number of staff members who are doing, are doing something uh, that doesn't have to be done in college and they'll say, why would I pay? Dublin rent. So if that if that staff if that uh, benefit is being seen by the staff, then then that benefit is also going to be seen by, by the students. There's going to be students that say, I don't want to come back to Dublin. You know, I'm I'm perfectly happy telecommuting and being online. And there's also there's 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 benefit, especially when we're talking about ability co-op. You know, there's so much benefit for accessibility in a, in a much more specific sense to be gotten from online. That I would hate to see online go away completely, even where even where it, the, the the module was being delivered primarily in person. I still think that we should try and capture as much of this online benefit as possible, because August comes, the entire country who is uh, eligible for the vaccine has gotten the vaccine. We are back. It's Freshers' Week, normal level debauchery. We're all in front square, two hundred societies. Everyone packed together, everything's normal. Right? I am a 23, physically able, not immunocompromised uh, person. I would be happy to be there. Not everyone would be. Okay? There will be a lot of people who will not be comfortable. Even if the entire country is vaccinated, they are unable to get the vaccine for whatever medical reason and they are uncomfortable. I don't think we should force those people to come back. So uh, part of part of what my, I mentioned, I was working on these plans earlier, and part of the things I'm lobbying for is that there should be an option, at least for first semester, there should be an option for any student who feels uncomfortable to apply to senior tutor, to, not senior tutor, senior lecturer, and get permission to attend college fully online for first semester. So I do see online as being here to stay, whether as a mitigation for COVID or as just the future of education. And I think lectures seeing it from the other side will be good because there are there there are some modules that really benefit from being delivered online. I'm I'm sitting in a module right now, advanced thermal fluids design, and it's it's a design module which um means means there's pretty much just group work. It's like we've got a, a half hour session with the professor every Tuesday, and then the rest of it is just us working together. And I sitting the way we're working on this this right now. Maybe it's just because I've been working in COVID for so long, but I can't imagine this module being as effectively delivered in person. And the professor himself has admitted, Tony Robinson is like, yeah, I've learned a lot of a lot of ways to do this better online than I did in person. So I yeah. think we will see that. I think we will see modalities being explored in the future because it's been discovered, oh, this is actually a pretty good way to deliver this information. Yeah. And you mentioned there how students, it's something of that two of the welfare candidates have also mentioned that students should have the option to keep continue learning online next semester. You're talking installing 
live streaming cameras, live streaming infrastructure into every single lecture theater. You're talking software to deliver this. You're talking at least a hundred thousand euros in investment to provide this feature for a disease to protect people against a disease that will hopefully be gone out of the country within a year. Is that really something that the education officer, even if they're the support of the welfare officer, that's something that you can implement and you'd have to have this implemented. You only take the role in May. Do you think that's something you can implement from May to September? I'm really glad you asked this question because it's an absolutely fantastic example of um, there being these resources in the college that people don't know about. So first of all, just to, you've said it twice now, so I'll correct you. Uh, it takes the office in July, so I've got like two, okay. two less months, and so I'm even more ambitious with this. And yes, I do think I can get uh, cameras and software installed in every single lecture here in college. You know why? Because they're already there. That is why Trinity was able to transition so quickly to online, because we have had the Panopto software for at least four years. That has been there. I had lectures on Panopto when I was in second year. That infrastructure has been sitting there unused. The college has invested staggering amounts of money in there in every single room in the college designated a lecture theater. Okay, so that's not every classroom. That's everything designated a lecture theater. That is things like um, is a 4057, I think is the, the big one in the arts block. And then there's Thomas Davis and there's Ed Burke, McNeil, Stanley, Stanley Quek, Delier Street. Those sorts of big, like anything you would reasonably call a lecture theater. They all have a camera in the back pointing down. They have audience microphones embedded in the wall so they can pick up conversations in the room. They've got um, microphones in the, in the podium and they've got a screen capture software. So that's basically two or three clicks for any lecturer to live stream anything, right? School of Med already uh, record all of their lectures maybe not all, they record a good portion of their lectures as just normal practice. That was pre-pandemic. Pre That's what they already did because the infrastructure is there. So I wouldn't have to convince the college to spend 100,000 euro to make this possible because the college has already spent 100,000 euro to make this possible. They just haven't been utilizing it. So I wouldn't be convincing the college to spend money. I would be convincing the college to use the equipment they've already paid for, which is a much easier conversation to have. Really interesting. I didn't know that. I knew we had an opto, but yeah. There's um, the benefit of institutional knowledge of me being involved in the ESU since second year. I just, I know the better than a lot of academics. That's a good point. Um, and that brings me on to my next question. What sets you apart from Bev? and makes you the best uh, candidate for education officer. I think a lot of it just comes down to pure raw experience. Like I've just been doing this a very long time and I've just, I've made a lot of mistakes in my time. I've learned a lot of mistakes. I love, uh, didn't have half, half these uh, manifesto ideas if I'd ran last year because I didn't have the same experience as I do now. Like being, I, this is my second year as being a faculty convener. And that, that one, even that one year of experience as a faculty convener 
has sorry if you can hear the uh, traffic and Michael Paul's my answer until yeah, yeah. The, the, be- the benefit of a uh, of Goldsmith um, sometimes people just come back in uh, and rev their engines but yeah no like be the year of faculty meter has gotten me to see I got even when I was a class rep I always I always went for policy solutions this is just how I've always been but being faculty convener and actually having the conversations with the provost, actually having the conversations with the senior lecturer, actually having the conversations with the vice provost, chief academic officer, like actually interacting with these really high level officers. And then also seeing how these college policies work on the ground level and just having that year of experience in actually doing this work, which is about as close to the education officer as you can get. Faculty convener is about as close as you can get. And like the way I the way I did um, stuff for the faculty last year is different than I did this year, not just because of COVID, it's because I learned from my mistakes. So like diversity in STEM is a really good example. Diversity in STEM has really thrived this year. And it's thrived uh, because Bev is legitimately a fantastic chair of diversity in STEM. But it's also thrived because the way I set up diversity in STEM last year was not a good structure. I learned from that. I set it up and this year as a better structure and it's it's thrived and i i i know that like there's also you have to have to give credit to the people involved but i think that the structure helps the people do their best work uh i've brought in a lot of transparency stuff of the union that just over the course of my time in the union i I just discovered different problems and i could not have discovered them without being like there's a lot of things when i was less experienced in the union i didn't realize were problems because i just kind of assumed oh yeah no I don't know enough about this yet, so it's, it's fine. I, like it, see, it doesn't seem right to me, but everyone else who's more experienced than me is saying it's fine. So I have to have an element of trust in them. And now I have become one of the most experienced people in the union. So now I can definitively say, no, no, if I think it's a problem, it's because I have the four years to say it's a problem. I've brought in various reforms to deal with that. Like I've, I've increased transparency, I've increased accountability. I've brought in I've brought in more structure. I've gotten I've gotten the union to be able to be more effective at what it does because I've seen four years of being ineffective. Yeah, that makes sense. And finally, 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 if you could only implement one policy from your manifesto, what would it be? See, I should give the same answer as last night, but I've kind of changed my mind. So last night I was asked this exact question in Hustings and I said the feedback in four weeks because I think it will have the longest standing. I think after I'm gone, if I get that implemented, it would have the longest lasting impact on people's education. But I'm going to give a different answer. I'm going to say the um, planes, trains, has a reservation because I've just been talking to some people and I think that, and I know it's, it's a it's a weird thing to talk about now, but um, just the the Erasmus system is just so inexplicable. It's so it's so um, daft, to be honest. The way the way the Erasmus works, and I think if uh, if we brought in that Erasmus system to help, there isn't I, I I keep using the word system, but again you pinned it on me earlier. I like I like systems that solve problems. I don't want to continue solving problems on my own. I want to build a system that'll solve problems so and then me walk away from it so I can work on something else. And I think yeah, 
the uh, system for letting Erasmus students share their their experience so that others can benefit from it and uh, learn about how to actually do Erasmus in a different in a different setting. Um, good. I know it's not the most topical one for the uh, Ability Co-op podcast. I probably, if I was being uh, strategic about it, I would have talked about my accessibility things. But um, in in truth, I think they will have. Uh, I, I think the, my accessibility uh, plans is much more long term. I don't think it'll have. Uh, I, I think other people will be able to do similar work. I think the, the the Erasmus information one is something that I specifically would do very well. So, can you help me out here and just we'll briefly cover this because we're running out of time. So you have walk a module in my shoes. You have feedback in four weeks. You have all out of pocket expenses covered, and I believe you have two more big ones. Can you fill in the blanks for me? Yes, the, the Erasmus one that right. I, I just mentioned. And then the, the is the last one was mentioned here, but it it is it is a big thing in my it's really in every form. Okay. So like I I I kind of consider this to be an all-encompassing thing. That's why I didn't say as one of my policies, because this isn't really a policy, this is more of a philosophy. Would you say the name of it again? I just missed everything. Accessibility in every form. Yeah, keep talking about it, please. So yeah, so it's it's the, it's the third one on my manifesto, and it's it's down it's down as a policy, but I didn't say it as my my one big policy because it's less of a policy, more of a philosophy, in that you know, everything in education is an accessibility issue, and I think you can address any problem as an accessibility problem. Like we're talking about. The walking module in my shoes and trying to get lecturers to really understand what it's like that's an access issue that's because that's a lecturers not understanding what it's like to um be on the other side of the screen so they're making choices that make their make the content they're trying to deliver less accessible we're talking about Erasmus information that's people being uh dis disenfranchised from Erasmus because they can't access it we talk about getting our money's worth that's disenfranchising people from college because uh, people from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds can't really get into college. So accessibility in every form is um, a broad philosophy in that. And then also specifically, um, it's trying to capture the accessibility benefits that have come from online learning. We briefly touched on this at the top, but like there's there's benefit to be captured from recorded lectures st staying put, from uh, lecture captioning being an option. You can't you can't effectively capture a uh, caption rather someone live speaking in a room. But if you record the lecture and you upload an opto, it's got pretty good captioning software. And then there's different options. I've been also been working on the guidelines and the processes and systems in the college for how captioning can be dealt with. We've gone through a couple of different proposals for um, how inaccurate captions can be updated so dealing with that problems and trying to put in systems to deal with those and then also there's just there's a there's a really big problem with physical accessibility in the college and that the college literally don't know what the college looks like this is a, a shocking realization of mine um a year or so ago when i just got i got this idea to make some maps to just to like map out the college and where 
bathrooms and specifically I was looking for gender neutral bathrooms as as a the thing I was I was focusing on at the time. But then as I as I started on this project, it became apparent that the college doesn't have up to date maps of its own buildings. The college so it's very difficult to try and systemically improve physical access to buildings when college management have absolutely no reference other than walking into the building themselves, which they don't have time to do. Uh, they you can't show them a map and say this floor is only accessible by stairs because that map doesn't exist uh the college just doesn't have one so i i wanted to try and build this resource for two prongs like there, there's an interesting output in that we can put a map on the su website so that people can find rooms and plan accessible routes but mostly it's just that we have something that we can use to lobby the college and be like we have built up this map of the college here is the entire sections or whole buildings which if you cannot uh, traverse stairs you cannot get to um what we're we going to do about it interesting yeah i've heard you've talked about your map thing i encourage everyone to look out look check out your manifesto but all the canvas manifestos especially the two education officers because you know, you're very in depth daniel thanks for sitting down with us today no matter at all thanks for having me so there we have it guys, that's the episode, fair play Jeff for listening, those are the three candidates. Be sure to register before the 8th, it literally takes two seconds to fill out, you put in your student number, your name, it's on every single candidate's social media, so yeah, do that. Um, listen, about what I said at the start, we really do have so much going on at the Ability Co-op, we're growing so fast, and all these projects, like this podcast, I just mentioned it at a meeting. And everyone else was like, yeah, go on, go ahead. And then I applied for funding and I got it. And we got a couple hundred euro for funding. We're getting a studio next year. The short film, again, we, um, that was someone else proposed that idea. And we got a few grand for that. So we're doing that this summer. Um, so if you're interested in getting involved in any creative way, um, come in, get involved. And you can propose ideas and we'll probably support you. So yeah, and literally we need people with all skills, be it maths, numbers, you know, writing content, managing social media, building websites, literally anything you can think of, we need help. So do join if you're interested. You'll find links to all our socials in the show notes, or you can just look up the Ability Co-op. And yeah, hope you enjoyed. Listen, we have two more episodes on Education Officer and Welfare Officer, so give them a listen to. They're very good. And yeah, peace.